Hello and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Where do you go to find information about Ukraine? This week, we highlight the efforts of the Ukrainian research in the diaspora with a look at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies and their work in the creation of the Internet Encyclopedia of Ukraine. Stay tuned after for a discussion of the servant of the people's recent loss in Zelensky's hometown. This and more on Zakhrodonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukraine. The Internet Encyclopedia of Ukraine is, as its name suggests, a collection of information about Ukraine. Originally a five-volume edition of physical books, it's now an online site created and maintained by scholars and editors from the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. But it is also contributed to by hundreds of specialists all over the world. Since people and culture are constantly changing, the information about them tends to become out of date rather quickly. This project, therefore, is constantly evolving. Now, at the moment, the team is working on phase one now, which is all about taking the information from the original hard copy volumes and making that information available on the internet database. But at the same time, they are editing, updating and adding new entries every day. Once completed, they hope the encyclopedia will be the most comprehensive source of information on Ukraine, its history, people, geography, economy and cultural heritage written in the English language. It currently contains around 6,000 entries and 5,000 illustrations. Uh, so if you look at the website itself, it's laid out um, with different images and tabs on the left-hand side uh, with titles like history, people and culture, like I mentioned before. But it also has information about the land, like different regions of Ukraine and their flora and fauna, uh, like Ukrainian Baroque engraving and literature, uh, all the way from Kiev and the Rus to Ukrainian dissident writers of the 1960s to 80s. Did you say there was 6,000 articles? Mm-hmm. They got quite a, comp- a competition to Wikipedia. They're well, over a million. <laughs> well, they're getting there slow, slowly, like like Bidana said. But, like, Wikipedia is a lot easier to, like, you're just translating other articles most of the time anyway into Ukrainian, while in this one you're actually having to, like, research the article. Well, the, most of it, you said, is going from the physical copy and they're just putting it up. At the time, for the time being, yeah. So they've only done about 50% of the information from the original texts and put that up on the internet. So they're still, they've still got, you know, half of what was in the original books plus everything else that's happened since then. Yes, cool. So um, I did a bit of digging into, you know, this Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, who they are, you know, the goals that they have and all of that fun stuff. So when looking at their main goals, their mandate says that they are a prominent center of Ukrainian studies outside Ukraine and an integral part of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta, which I thought was interesting. Founded in 1976, it provides an institutional home for Ukrainian scholarship in Canada. Um, the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies is dedicated to the development of Ukrainian studies in Canada and supports such studies internationally. So I thought that was really interesting that they were tied in with the University of Alberta. I feel like this goes back to what we've said before, how Canada has such a strong um, presence of Ukrainians there being a diaspora country, like we mentioned Christopher Freeland in politics and stuff like that, um, to even to the point where <clears throat> they're research institutes are actually tied in with universities which i think that's something to strive for here in australia but i don't think we're there yet which you know that's that's pretty good 
You got to remember that like Canada has over a million Ukrainians or like Ukrainians, uh, Canadians with Ukrainian descent while in Australia, you're like pushing, I think it's 70,000. So, yes, there's quite a big difference between us and them, but I think it's a good initiative. It brings Ukraine into the focus, especially in Canada. And I've used it a couple of times and Alexa has as well yes. um, to do research. And in some instances, there's a lot more information compared to Wikipedia because obviously it's reading from the, it's copied from the encyclopedia of Ukraine. So, there's a lot more articles focusing on smaller topics or more like a irrelevant topics that Wikipedia doesn't focus on. So irrelevant topics? Oh, not irrelevant. It's like more um, like unknown topics. Okay. Yeah, and no, I think that's one of the really good things about it. Um, but in order to do that, you need to have the ability and the resources to actually dive deep into these topics. And that's why this institute's so good. So when looking more specifically into how they accomplish their goals... They have a number of centers, programs, and projects um, whose activities range from research to publishing, developing materials for Ukrainian language education, organizing conferences, lectures, and seminar series, and awarding graduate and undergraduate scholarships and research grants. So you can see there's a wide variety of um, things that they take part in to ensure that Ukrainian studies um, not only succeed, but they're actually able to produce um, products that other people can use around the world, which, you know, I think that's great. So, this organization, um, when looking at its history, it began in um, around the time of World War II, which was kind of when there was a lobby and there was a push by Ukrainian Canadian organizations to introduce Ukrainian studies, not just in Canada, but also around the world. And this was because the survival of the Ukrainian language was actually looking unlikely. And that was as a result of, obviously, there was no Ukrainian nation that was recognized uh, globally. And also, there was heavy oppression of Ukrainian language and culture in the Soviet Union at the time. So, it was a real, a really difficult period because people were worried about what the future of Ukrainian culture and, and Ukrainian language was looking would look like. So, because of this, they ended up pushing for a um, they ended up pushing for an a, a, an expansion of uh, Ukrainian studies. Uh, so, in the nineteen sixties, when this was all presented to a royal commission in Canada, there was a positive response to it. And the report that came out of that royal commission in the nineteen seventies stated that universities should expand their programs in humanities and social sciences in other cultures, not just English and French, which was what was common at the time. And given that you know post World War Two, Ukrainian migration to Canada vastly increased there was you can say there was more of a need for it because there were so many ukrainians there and they were um they made up such a large portion of canada's population that they saw okay well there's a need for this and we need to continue this even though at the time uh there was no like i said nation of ukraine that was recognized so i thought that was um that was a really good um, initiative? Initiative, yeah, on the on behalf of um, the Canadian government at the time. So, one of the first projects was actually creating the physical copy of the encyclopedia and it took 17 years to complete and over that entire time it took about a third of the annual budget each year that the institute had. 
And finally, they got it done. They got it printed. And now, obviously, they're trying to convert that into an online platform. Um, so, yeah, this I think this is really great, especially considering that it's done through the University of Alberta. So, now they have all those research uh, resources to keep all of this going um so when looking looking a little deeper into exactly what they the institute um does they do contemporary studies of ukrainian they do holodomod research and education which i think is really important given that it's still largely unknown the holodomod in most you know as, as a general knowledge topic i'd say that canada is one of the big pushes for recognizing holodomod as well because like you have uh, obviously the major the majority of Ukrainians in Canada and uh, even Justin Trudeau he's really active within the Ukrainian community and he does a lot of um, celebrations with the Ukrainian community. Furthermore, they do language education, um, funding research grants as I mentioned, and they also do different forums. So on their um, main, section of their website where they talk about uh, different, you know, news and what things that are coming up. They actually have um, a forum here. It's Forum on Race and Post-Colonialism in Ukraine. So, it's all those kind of interesting, unknown, as you mentioned, kind of topics and um, angles that people might not normally think about. And uh, yeah, I think it's that kind of stuff which really pushes forward um, an understanding of Ukrainian culture. But given all of this... And their work, Andrei, why would you say it's important? I think it gives Ukraine another platform to showcase itself and give it another like voice to project itself to the world. Because like a lot of people, they don't really know about Ukraine or if they do, they know very little about it and its history and its culture and its people. And a lot of the assumptions that Ukrainians get that we're similar to Russians, we speak Russian or like we don't. We don't actually we aren't actually like a separate nation. We're just like set up as a different country as itself, or like all that like myths with Ukraine and Russia. I think it it stems from the fact that a lot of people don't know what Ukraine is or what the Ukrainian people are. So um, by producing this website along with other websites, it gives Ukraine the best of its abilities to showcase itself and present itself and showcase its history and a lot of it's really unknown especially to western culture because you ask any like american or australian or british person or whatever um they're all like i've never heard of ukraine before or if they have heard of it is like because it's related to the trump impeachment and yeah, <laughs> yeah. or like some really high profile um news article really yeah but other than that it's like What's this? Yeah, all they say, like, because I had a few teachers at school that did a lot of their studies back when it was still part of the USSR. So, to them, it's like, oh, aren't they just an offshoot of, you know, what was left over from the USSR and they don't really understand the long history behind everything. But, yeah, I think you're right when it comes to showcasing Ukrainians, um, not, not just the history, but this culture and everything, you, you need someone to push forward. I wanted to ask a question. So, when you said um, one of the arms of research that they do at the Canadian Institute is um, post-colonialism in Ukraine, does that mean colonialism as like with the UK, with Britain, as a superpower back in the day? 
Um, it sort of is because it's the whole like Soviet colonialism and like the Russian Empire. It's sort of like in that context because, um, it's because like it's ho- the whole Russian idea of like trying to expand its territory and like become more powerful. It's sort of like the UK in a sense where, um, uh, like during the Middle Ages and like up until like the 20th century they had acquired all this land and like their empire was huge right so it's sort of like the same thing but um obviously it's still like there's still differences between the two yeah because given all of the um the assimilation that the ussr pushed for uh, still to this day, Ukraine is kind of like pushing against that so I guess yeah that's that's where it would come from that strive to kind of fight against all of the these assimilation policies that were put in place. So I've been recently reading this book called Ukraine, a book of essays by intellectuals in Ukraine. So it's about Ukraine and its histories and stories and it's a it's a whole bunch of like articles and interviews uh, intellectuals of Ukraine from Ukraine and they discuss uh, certain topics about Ukraine and one of them discusses about like yeah, background and stuff it's like his background and like what it was like growing up in the Soviet Union and in towards Ukraine as well towards the later years of his life and uh, one of the uh, authors he talks about uh, Ukraine's national identity in a sense and um, like kind of where it stems from and he's so this author is from Donetsk and he talks about how um, during the Soviet Union, when he was growing up, his pers- his parents acted like Soviet citizens, right? And his grandparents were the same. And his uh, great-grandparents, they were less Soviet uh, citizens, right? Because they were born before the Soviet Union existed. And he goes on to explain how Russian and Soviet people, like in a sense, their identity were almost one and the same. And that... In order to be a, uh, like a successful Soviet citizen, you had to give up your own national or cultural identity. So, like Nathan was mentioning earlier, before you, when Ukraine's language and identity was on its like last legs, that when Ukrainian identity and nationality had disappeared, it would turn into a Soviet idea and kind of all become one. Yeah, yeah. and you get rid of any of that uh, cultural minorities and whatever else existed. Yeah, and the author quotes. Yet the Russian identity remained the core of Soviet identity. Sovietization was hidden Russification. So pretty much it was all about destroying national identity and becoming a Russian citizen under the banner of a Soviet person. Well, I think it's good then that even though like this institute and this whole project started back in the 60s, kind of would have been around that time, I guess it's good that even if in Ukraina they weren't able to um, express themselves culturally there were other places in the diaspora where there were people still continuing that fight you know abroad and trying to help out Ukraina President Zelensky's party, Servant of the People, recently suffered a massive upset in the mayoral election of his own hometown, Krevirich. 
And what ended up happening was that the party's candidate, Dmitry Shevchuk, was the obvious favorite to win. And this was after his opponent, Yuri Vilkul, from the Ukrainian Perspective Party, which is a pro-Russian party, he withdrew from the runoff election, uh, citing health problems. So how the elections work is that recently had they had their local elections, and the top two candidates out of those local elections go to a runoff election, and it's just the two of them. Now, since Vilkul dropped out because of the health um, reasons, the third candidate in the it was you know came third ends up taking his place. So this uh, third candidate, Kostyantin Pavlov, was from the party uh, opposition platform for life. It's also a pro-Russian party as well, and. Surprisingly, what ended up happening was um, Shevchuk ended up losing the election, which no one saw coming, especially given that that was Zelensky's hometown. Um, So this was really interesting, and it's another massive blow to uh, Zelensky's party because it seems like his support, even in places that used to be in favor of his particular type of platform, are now turning against him. So, when looking at the actual results of the election, he ended up, this is um, Pavlov, ended up winning by uh, 56% of the vote, which, yeah, was a a massive surprise when looking at the um, results or looking at the the predictions that were coming up previously. Um, So, on a side note, Yuri Vilkul, he was actually a member of Viktor Yanukovych's party. And or the party of regions. And when looking into why exactly Pavlov won, it was largely due to the fact that once Vilkul dropped out of the race, he actually endorsed Pavlov. So it seems like the two pro-Russian party voters kind of merged together and ended up voting against servant of the people. Uh, so what do you guys think? Um, why do you think servant of the people lost in his own hometown? I know we we we've we've meant. I know we said like it's because of the the um, the endorsement, but this is Zelensky's party in his own hometown. Why why the sudden change? It's a difficult question to really answer, considering that we're not there and like we're not really affected by it. But I think one of the main reasons why is because of the dissatisfaction with the way Zelensky is running. Um, in on the like international platform, and considering the parliamentary election, like the national parliamentary elections as well, like and how fractured his own party is there. So Kriviyich is a generally a pro-Russian region of Ukraine because it's in southeastern Europe. It's in southeastern Ukraine, which is generally viewed as a pro-Russian area, but has started shifting towards a pro-European or even a neutral stance as well. But that didn't stop uh, Poroshenko from winning the parliamentary elections there in 2014. So I think it's more about just the dissatisfaction with how the country's running and that's why they voted to go back to the pro-Russian parties. It's because the whole idea is that this all, hap- uh, this all happened because of Poroshenko in a sense, is, is what I see them viewing it as. So it's kind of like... Because of Poroshenko's failures, and now it looks like because of Zelensky's failures, they're kind of done with that particular branch of the political spectrum? Yeah, I think it's because of the whole before... I think it's because of the whole war in eastern Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. Um, because before all this, before Ukraine was even uh, majority pro-European, um, 
life was simple back then. You didn't have to deal with a war. You didn't have uh, a crashing economy or you didn't really have all these issues that have built up now and you don't have all these reforms trying to push through and like struggling to get through as well. So I think they just wanted to go back to the status quo of just in a sense, having a normal life back to like where everything was the norm, really. This is why they've gone back to their original vote. The pro-Russian side. Yes. Yeah, they, they've originally gone back to their electorate. Yeah, gotcha. I don't know. Am I the only one who draws a little bit of a parallel between Trump and America? Like, you know, back when Trump won in, when was it, 2016? Yeah. Um, you know, it was him versus Clinton and everyone thought that Clinton was going to win, but then it ended up being that Trump won because people were like, oh, well, you know, out of the two of them, they're both not the best, but Trump's probably the one that's going to be the best. Because oh, is it sort of like they view him as like an outsider to politics and he's less likely to be like corrupt as they would view them or Maybe. something else? Well, that would be the populist kind of um, attitude. But like Trump and Zelensky are similar in the sense that they're both populist and s- it's kind of like Trump now lost because everyone realized that the things he was saying as a populist, he wasn't actually putting into practice. Well, like he was talking about introducing, you know, a much better healthcare plan and here we are four years later and he didn't do that. And he was talking about all these other things he was going to try and fix, um, like COVID. His, his attitude towards COVID was terrible. So, I feel like the pendulum kind of swung back against him. And maybe it's doing the same with Zelensky. It's starting to swing back, but it's just a shame that the only opposition that people are seeing now is pro-Russian as opposed to another pro-Ukrainian party like servant of the people, but, you know, is just as popular. It seems like they're thinking, oh, our only alternative is now to go back to the pro-Russian ones. But is there another pro-Ukrainian party in Ukraine? Yeah, there's uh, well, there's a ton. Like you got like Holos and all these other ones as well. But I like when you look at the election results, the second most favored party was um, the pro-Russian one. The third most favored party was a pro-Russian party. So they've kind of just merged together in this one particular election and um, ended up claiming a victory. Yeah. So there's a lot of pro-European and pro-Russian parties. As a lot of you might know, you have. Uh, European Solidarity, which is Poroshenko's party. You have Staff Reliance. You have the Radical Party, Patkushchenla, which is uh, Tomashenko's party. You have Narodny Front, which is Yatsinok, if many people know about him. So, there's a lot of pro-European parties, but there's also a lot of pro-Russian parties. So, you have the opposition bloc, you have the full life bloc, you have the Communist Party of Ukraine, Ukrainian Choice. So, you have all these other parties and you don't really hear about the smaller ones because Ukraine still has this whole multi-party system in a sense that each party kind of only lasts one or two elections before uh, another populist or whatever comes up and makes their own party. So, this there isn't like a stable party system. Yeah. I guess it's kind of Not like, like the US or Australia. Or yeah, because like the US, you always have like the main four parties. Uh, you got Democrats, Republicans, but then you also have Libertarian and Greens. And even though Libertarian and Greens don't really get much of the vote and there's pretty much no chance that they're going to win. I mean, if there was any time, if there was any time they were going to win, it would have been like 2016. And even then they didn't have enough to pull off a victory. So, I guess it's kind of like that. But if those minor parties just kept swapping around- that's we, why they wouldn't be able to get, they can't get momentum because they just die off so quickly. Well, like the funny thing is, is that a lot of like parties that do die off, they're still registered and they just become dormant until 
the next election really where they like kind of come back into force or if if they don't go back into force then someone else just buys the party off them and uses it as their own because they were too late to register their own party really oh okay right um it's so still like a mixed bag of yeah i got you um now when looking into the um the backers of a lot of these candidates um i thought it was interesting that our our best mate from <laughs> last week's episode Akhmatov, uh made another appearance yeah and funny funnily enough he had ties to all three candidates in the race so either way he was going to win uh, it was going to be a good good win for him either way if it was Shevchuk Vilkur or Pavlov or Pavlov so since the war Akhmatov has kind of moved away from Donetsk and Luhansk he's had a deep investment within Kreviriek where he owns three major energy plants and has been long associated with the city's ruling party so Shevchuk was a top manager for one of Akhmatov's energy holdings uh, within the region. And he was also uh, once a representative of Akhmatov's own party, the opposition bloc party. Now with Vilkuch, he's been a long-standing political ally of Akhmatov even before the election, with Vilkuch's son Alexander being one of the leaders of the opposition bloc as well, while also serving as a top manager within Akhmatov's companies. Now, a lot of political observers speculated that there was actually a secret agreement between Zelensky, Akhmatov and Vilkuch where Vilkuch was stand down and that uh, uh, Zelensky's party candidate candidate Shevchuk would become uh, mayor of Kreviriek, but both Alexander Vilkuch and Zelensky's office have denied this involvement anyway. And I guess either way, Akhmatov would, like you mentioned, he'd be happy with the result either way. So if Vilkuch, uh, Vilkuch decided that he was going to like uh, go against that deal if it did exist... And have you know endorsed the other candidate, and this other candidate ends up winning. So Pavlov ends up winning anyway. I guess Zakhmatov is like, yeah, okay, same, same. But I find it really interesting that Akhmatov was even tied into servant of the people, given Zelensky's heavy stance against corruption. I think it's more because that some of the candidates were actually part of of Akhmatov's party, and or once worked with Akhmatov. And so I think that's why there's a connection between Zelensky and Akhmatov. Yeah, but like, maybe do a better job picking your candidates next time <laughs> and not pick someone who's like, so, I don't know. I don't know if that had anything to do with the him actually losing, but I don't, I don't think it helped. Well, I think like uh, the reason why Pavlov won was because Vilkul endorsed him after withdrawing from the race. So... I'm kind of surprised that such a majority went back to uh, went out to support Pavlov instead of supporting the runner-up uh, Shevchuk. Because considering Shevchuk got, I think it was 27% in the first run, while uh, Pavlov got only 9%, and now it's pretty much 50 uh, over 50% for Pavlov, and just behind is Shevchuk. So I'm kind of surprised that that happened really. Yeah, but I guess it's just, it's not looking good for servant of the people so far. So, it's going to be interesting to see. When's their next presidential election? Uh, I think it's 2024. Wow, that's a long term. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a five-year term. Oh, okay, right. Well, I guess uh, 2024, we'll uh, see what happens with Zelensky. <laughs>
This week in the news. December 8th marked the anniversary of the Belazhava Accords, an agreement between Russia, Ukraine and Belarus that declared the USSR no longer existed. These countries make up three of the four nations that established the USSR back in 1922. Ukrainian artist Katerina Bilokur was celebrated in Google's Daily Doodle on December 7th, marking her 120th birthday. Her detailed and vivid paintings of flowers so impressed Ukrainian singer Oksana Petrosenko that she helped organize the first exhibitions of her work. She then gained international renown in 1954 when her work was praised by Picasso at an exhibition in Paris. She was named a People's Artist of Ukraine, the highest arts award for Ukrainian citizens. The Kyiv Post and Ukrainska Pravda both reported on December 1st that Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau was carrying out a criminal investigation into Oleg Tatarov, President Zelensky's Deputy Chief of Staff. Tatarov is alleged to have embezzled money through real estate company Ukurburt's housing development contract for Ukraine's National Guard and bribed a forensic censor subordinate in order to get favorable evaluations for the company. In response, Tatarov made a public attack against the bureau and its chief, Artem Setnik, claiming that the agency was under foreign control and calling for him to be sacked. Ukrainian conductor Oksana Lenyev received the Oprah Award as the best conductor in Germany. She will be the first female conductor of the Beirut Festival, where she will be opening in 2021 with a new production of The Flying Dutchman. In addition, she is working on a unique musical project that will combine traditional and classical music, films and multimedia installations, book publications and interactive games. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.